0: Birthday. Something happened on that day, and we don't know exactly what happened. Okay, um, guys, can everyone hear me? Good. Okay, great. So I apologize for last week that my uh, phone died in the middle of the session in the bowling alley, but I'm going to make up for it this week because I'm going to share some of the ideas I was working on last week and and make it even better, hopefully, uh, more organized. So I want to share with you. Um, what I believe is a lasting message that we can take home from these parshas, the Torah portions that we are learning right now and really ties in perfectly with the whole um, idea of Hanukkah as well. Although Hanukkah is over, the light of Hanukkah and the inspiration of Hanukkah is supposed to carry us throughout the winter and throughout the rest of the year. So hopefully we can grab a message that is very relevant and uh, I believe it's as follows. Let's talk a little bit about the Torah portion. Starting last week, going into yesterday's Torah portion, and continuing in next week's Torah portion. And then finally, in, an, in two weeks from now, the last parsha of the book of Genesis is all talking about the story of Joseph, Joseph, and the descent of the Jewish people into Egypt, into, which event, eventually culminated in the slavery Of Egypt, which lasted for 210 years. And then finally, in the next next book of the five books of Moses, the book of Exodus, Shamos, we learn about the Exodus from Egypt and the giving of the Torah in Mount Sinai. And that's a whole different topic. But I want to talk about the story of Yosef and the lessons we can learn from Yosef. And we'll also tie it into Hanukkah. So Yosef is born at the top, the top of the world. He's the oldest son of. Jacob, born to Rachel, Rachel, who is Jacob's number one, uh, number one love, uh, and Yaakov, of course, has four wives. But the one that he really wanted to marry was Rachel, and he only took additional wives because he was tricked to marry Leah, and and then um, Rachel gave him her mer- her maid servant um, in order that he should have children, because Rachel didn't ha- was unable to have children for most of their marriage. And eventually she gave birth to Yosef and finally Benyamin, and then she passes away. So Yaakov has a special connection to Yosef. Yosef is born at the top of the world. He's the closest son to Yaakov. And he, as a child, he has dreams of grandeur, of becoming a king, of his siblings bowing down to him. And his siblings, his brothers, his his uh, at least 10 of his brothers um, are suspicious of him. They believe that perhaps... He's a bad seed. Maybe he is a child who is going away from the mission of J- the Jewish people. Maybe he should not be the chosen son to pass on that legacy. Although all of Yaakov's sons essentially are, are part of the Jewish mission. They're worried that he might be the Yishmal or the Esav, the one that went bad of previous generations. And they're also a little bit jealous of him perhaps. So they conspire against him. And they throw him into, they sell him into slavery. And Yosef is sold into slavery, and eventually is brought down in shackles to Egypt. He's sold to uh, to Arab merchants and Midianite merchants, who so in turn sell him. And he's eventually brought down to Egypt, and he is sold to uh, one of the one of the royal lords uh, uh, in Egypt. Someone named Potiphar. And very quickly, Yosef rises right back up to the top. And he becomes the head of the household. He's literally in charge of everything going on in, in this Lord's house. And then suddenly, tragedy strikes again. The master's wife tries to seduce Joseph, And Yosef runs away from her. And she accuses him of having raped her. And he is thrown into prison again going from the top of the world stripped of everything and thrown into the darkest depths and he's lingering away in prison and in prison there are two former servants of paro who one day look depressed and yosef asks them what's wrong and they say we had these weird dreams they tell him their dreams and yosef interprets their dreams and he says by the way uh, one of you is going to be freed. And when you get out, remember to tell Paro that there's a Jew here in prison who knows how to interpret dreams. And I was thrown here on false charges and try to get me out. The the guy forgets about Yosef. Two years pass. Yosef is again in prison for two more years. And, and by the way, in his time in prison, he again rises up to the top. He becomes the head prisoner. He's in charge of all the other prisoners, all the happenings going on in the prison. And finally, two years later, Paro has a dream, and he can't interpret it, and one of his servants says, oh, by the way, there's this Jew in prison that I met, and he knows how to interpret dreams, and Yosef's taken out of prison, and he interprets Paro's dream. He says that there are seven years of plenty coming, and those seven years of plenty will be followed by seven years of famine, and it's going to be a famine for the whole region, and you should appoint someone who's wise oversee collection of grain and storehouses and and then egypt everything will be good in egypt and paro says you must be that man and paro again un- appoints yosef to be the viceroy second in control of the entire egyptian empire okay eventually yosef's brothers come down to egypt searching for grain in the time of famine and yosef does a whole shtick basically to test them to see if they've Kind of change if they've if they've bettered their ways and in the end reveals himself to his brothers, brings the whole family down, takes care of them through the remaining years of famine, and eventually the whole uh, the, the story um, would have ended good except that eventually the Egyptians be, uh, decide to enslave the Jews okay that's essentially the story so what message can we take from the life life of Yosef? How does he – I mean, what question would you want to know about Yosef's techniques to success? He certainly is a very successful person. What questions would you like to know about based on Yosef's life? What message do you think we can learn from Yosef? Anyone? In many ways, Yosef's story is a quintessential Jewish story of going into exile, being a stranger in a strange land, and very quickly rising to success and prosperity, and then being kicked out, persecuted, and having to start all over again, and again the pattern repeating itself. So, what can we learn from Yosef about how to overcome hard times in life? What what would happen to you or me? If we were in a situation like that, if our whole family turned against us and we found ourselves sold into slavery and repeating again and again, then then thrown into jail, what what would happen to your average person in that situation? Someone please help me out here. They might give up. They might give in to despair. How might they feel? they might lose faith in who? In themselves, God, maybe humanity. And what emotion do you think they would feel? Anger. For sure. What else? Depression. 100%. Despair and they might feel like a victim. All right, anyone want to add anything to that list? So let's explore. I believe that Yosef's life embodies five very, very practical messages on how to overcome depression, how to overcome despair, how to overcome anger and victimhood and how to succeed in every situation in life no matter how oppressed you may feel okay so let's go through some of these messages together so first point yosef is sold into egypt sold to arab merchants and the torah tells us specifically that these merchants are selling delicious beautiful spices and the commentaries in, in the name of the Talmud point out that normally these Arab merchants sold um, tar or pitch or gasoline, unpleasant-smelling substances. And because of Yosef's great righteousness, God didn't want him to have to suffer at all unneed- unneed- needlessly. So therefore, it happened to be that these Arabs were selling beautiful smelling incense and spices. So that message I find very troubling. Does anyone have a question or find that message to be problematic? God wants to show Yosef how much he loves him and therefore he sends him down into slavery in a sweet smelling caravan. Guys, would that do it for you? Your whole family turns against you. You're stripped away of everything and thrown into slavery. But you know what? Hey, the cattle cars don't smell so bad. Would anyone find uh, hope or a positive message in that experience? Of imagine, God forbid, being thrown into a cattle car on the way to Auschwitz and then realizing that actually uh, this one was pretty nice smelling. They cleaned out the manure and the dead bodies, God forbid. So the answer is we might not notice it. But Yosef noticed it. And that's message number one of avoiding depression is see the good in every situation. Every dark cloud has a silver lining. We have to train ourselves. Instead of running through life, we have to stop and smell the flowers. We have to notice that there are positive messages being told to us in every tragedy, in every negative experience, in every hardship. There are signposts of God's love. Despite the fact that things look terrible, despite the tragedy, despite the fact that we don't see how this could be good, we have to train ourselves to see the small positive messages. And in fact, one of the techniques to help a person out of depression is ask them to find something good in their life. Anything, no matter how small it is, whether it's a sunrise or a cup of coffee or one positive interaction with somebody in their life, that one small positive thing can be the lifeline to pull you out of the pit of despair. So begin to look for the small positive things in life. That's message number one from Yosef. Okay, questions? Do you hear it? Does it sound does it sound like it could be helpful? Let's move on to lesson number two. When Yosef eventually He he basically pulls this whole charade. His brothers come down to Egypt searching for grain, and they don't recognize Yosef. They have no idea that their brother, who they sold into slavery, is literally the vice president of the entire most powerful nation at the time. They they just can't wrap their hand around it. They don't recognize him. He was young when he went into slavery. Now he has a beard. He's wearing a whole… Egyptian crown get up thing with a power hat and the whole they can't they don't recognize him and he does his whole trick to them to test them and in the end when he reveals himself to them they start shaking in their boots and they're sure he's going to kill them he's gonna throw them into jail they don't know what he's gonna do and he doesn't do anything he says go home get my get our father bring him home I'm giving you prime real estate in Egypt I'm going to take care of you and support you. Then when their father passes away, they're sure this is it. This is it. Yosef is going to to finally now punish us. And again, nothing. And they say to Yosef, you know, please forgive us. Please forgive us. And Yosef says, you guys, what should I forgive you for? You guys didn't do anything wrong. And they're like, what? He's like, yeah. He says, it wasn't you who sold me into slavery in Egypt. It was God and god sent me here to be a supporter of the entire egypt and the entire world and our, and to take care of our entire family so how do we understand this first of all that's an incredible message for someone to let go of revenge and anger and to forgive like that but how did he do it the answer is very simple is when you realize That there is nothing in this world that anyone can do to you, good or bad, that isn't part of God's master plan. There is nobody in the world that you have to be afraid of, or you have to be angry at. There are people in our life who hurt us, and we certainly don't want to have those people in our life. If they're going to be repeat offenders, we have to protect ourselves. But ultimately, holding revenge and holding a grudge, hurts us much more than it hurts the other person as i believe gandhi said that holding a grudge is basically like drinking poison and hoping that your enemy will die right you gain nothing from it but how do we let go of grudges the answer is to realize it's not them it's hashem everything that happens happens for a reason and the key is to realize that The one thing that's in our control in life. They could take, they could strip you of all power. They could strip you of everything. But the one thing that's always in your control is what? What's the one thing? Yeah. Excellent. Your attitude. Your attitude is always in your control. We might not always have power over all of our actions even, right? But we always have a choice how to respond internally. We can always choose how to think about the situation, which in turn affects our emotions, which in turn affects our actions, Right? right? Don't blame, don't complain. Take responsibility for yourself. Now, studies have shown that and if you, if you read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, right, that the happy and successful people spend most of their time focusing on things that are within their circle of influence. All right, you can watch the news or sports and get really annoyed and frustrated at the referee's call or at the United Nations or at the world's response to Israel, and that leads to frustration, anger. And depression and anxiety, there's nothing you can do about it. But when you focus on yourself and the people immediately around you who you can actually inspire, so then you actually take responsibility for the areas of life that are in your control. right? Instead of spending your days focusing on your bad boss and how much you hate him or her, focus on what you can do to do better at your job, to appreciate your job more, to have better relationships with the people in your life. And, and to use your talents in a positive way. So there's no there's no one in life who is stripped from that. And Viktor Frankl says that in Auschwitz, we are stripped of everything except for one thing, our ability to choose our way, to choose how we respond. And sometimes that's the greatest gift. I always said, I hope I never have to experience whether or not this is true, but I always believed that my, that, you know, I struggle sometimes with negative thoughts, just like everyone. And I sometimes tell myself, if I was in jail or in Auschwitz, then I'd be happy. Like, what? That's crazy. The answer is yeah, because so much of my unhappiness is because I keep thinking, if only I would have, could have, should have done differently. If only should I go to this place or that case, FOMO, should I do this or should I do that? But when you realize there's nothing you can do, you have no choice but to just accept move on, and make the best of the situation. All right. who, who's happier, someone who wins the lottery or someone who's a paraplegic, someone who becomes paralyzed? Anyone, if you had a choice, would you rather win the lottery, all, all hands up for winning the lottery, or become paralyzed? Anyone? So the truth is, is that studies show that neither of them make a difference in your emotional health. If you're a naturally optimistic person, so after becoming a paraplegic, you might be depressed for a few weeks, a few months, but eventually things go back to normal. Winning the lottery, be really happy for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months, and then it becomes normal. Go back to status quo. Your baseline takes over. So if you can focus on positive attitude, whether you're win the lot, when, w- w- be, whether you become a paraplegic or not, will not affect your emotional state. Whether, and if you're a depressed, naturally person that sees the negative in things, I don't like to use the term a depressed person. It's not there's such a thing as a depressed person. It has to do with attitudes. It has to do with conditioning and habits. But if you naturally see the negative in your situation, so winning the lottery also will not help. There'll still be all sorts of other things that you regret in life. So don't live in the past. Over-fixation in the past leads to What? Mental health issue. Fixating on the negative in the past. Depression. Depression and fixation and negativity in the future. Anxiety. As opposed to being present in the moment, focusing on the good that we have and focusing on the areas of our life where we can take responsibility, where we actually have the ability to make a difference. So, message... The first two messages of Yosef's life is see the small positive things in our life, the small miracles, and see the big miracles, see the good. Recognize that there's good even in the bad. Even in the big bad things, and, and that there's small good and in the mundane of our life and there's good in the big bad things of our life. And this of course is one of the main big messages of Hanukkah is to recognize the miracles that are with us every single day as we pray in the Shmoneh uh, Esrei, in the prayer that we say every day, we say, and for the miracles that are with us every single day, in the morning, evening, and afternoon. We are surrounded by miracles. We just have to train ourselves to focus on them, whether it's the smile of a loved one, or a child, or a sunrise, or a bird chirping, or some sort of delicious food, or the fact that uh, God put us in a color world with beautiful fruit that we can appreciate. The world could be black and white. It's all a matter of training ourselves to see the positive. Okay, message number three. What were, Yosef was sold into jail into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused by his master, thrown into jail. He has every excuse to hate the world. But when Yosef finds himself in jail, he says four words that change the entire fate of history. He sees two of his fellow inmates looking down. And Yosef says to them, why do you look down today? He literally turns to them and asks them, what, what's wrong? And because he takes notice in another person and tries to cheer them up, he ends up interpreting their dreams and eventually getting out of prison and becoming the viceroy of Egypt. So message number three of Yosef's life is no matter how down you are, there's always someone worse than you. There's always someone worse off than you. And make it your business when you're feeling down, to try to cheer someone else up. This is the number one recipe for getting out of depression is try to help someone else. Try to do good. Do an act of kindness. Volunteer. Do a mitzvah. Fake it till you make it. Try to brighten up someone else's day. And that, of course, is uh, one of the Really special messages of Hanukkah is that when we light the Hanukkah menorah, we're literally bringing light into the darkness. We're showing that even in the the darkness of winter, in the dark of night, in the dark of exile, there is light. There is light, but the message of Hanukkah is that we're lighting up our candles primarily for other people to see. To share the light. It's not enough to keep it for yourself. You have to share it. So message number three is to try to light up someone else's life. And message number four is that Yosef is a dreamer. He has dreams of greatness. And throughout all this time of exile and slavery, he never gives up on his dreams he never gives up hope of becoming great and doing great things and in fact his hope and his ability to dream gives him the ability to interpret other people's dreams as well that if you learn to see the positive to believe in yourself to realize that you have a gift and you're destined for greatness, then throughout all the hardship you can overcome. And finally, Yosef interprets Paro's dream that there will be f- seven good years followed by seven years of famine. And he says, so how do, what do you do in the good times? Do you party? Do you just Do you just live it up and enjoy and say whatever will come will come? Says Joseph, no, you have to plan for the future. You have to know good times don't last. Inspiration has an expiration date. And therefore, in those moments of inspiration when things are going great in life, you have to put away resources of hope and inspiration for the rainy days and the dark times. How do we do that? How do we hold on to inspiration? You know some of you guys in this the past 10 weeks of this fellowship might have had moments of insight or inspiration into life, into the meaning of life, into your own life, into what it means to be a Jew, into Jewish wisdom. You might have had a moment of inspiration. You might have had moments of inspiration other times in your life, whether it was on a trip to Israel, on a rage trip, or at a at a milestone event in your life, a graduation, a wedding, We all have moments of inspiration. How do we hold on to the inspiration? Because we all know inspiration doesn't last. Inspiration, as amazing as it is, goes away very quickly. So Jewish mysticism teaches us that inspiration is like a soul. It's a spiritual experience. And what does a soul need in order to exist in this world? What's essential for a soul to exist in this world? Um, Everything has a purpose, but to live in this world, a soul needs something. Something very specific for a soul to function in the physical universe that we inhabit. Definition of life is body and soul. A soul without a body can't live in this world, can't function in this world. So in order for inspiration to last, you have to put it into a body. What's the body for inspiration? You know what the word inspire means? In Latin, it means to infuse with spirit, to infuse with soul. Take that soul and infuse it into action. Put it into an action. If you can take the inspiration and put it into a small, constant, and steady action, the inspiration can literally change you and transform your life and stay with you. So, the menorah, literally in the temple, represents inspiration. It represents lighting the spark of inspiration every single day. Kindling that flame. It comes through work and effort. Love at first sight? Unbelievable. Did you do anything to experience love at first sight? Anyone ever experience love at first sight? Another word for that is infatuation. Ever fall in love? Does it take any effort to fall in love? It's easy. It's free. It's instantaneous. How long does it last? sometimes a couple of minutes when you hear the other person open their mouth sometimes a couple of weeks inevitably within 2 weeks maximum 2 years the experience of infatuation goes away infatuation is a is a chemical experience caused by certain hormones and physical reactions to see, meeting someone that you want to mate with but that feeling does not last, cannot last. And after two years, people often either break up or uh, – well, typically that's generally what happens is they break up. Or they realize that the inspiration wasn't real. The, the romance wasn't real. The love at first sight wasn't real. We have to make it real. We have to work now on the relationship. We have to actually learn to inspire each other, inspire ourselves. And that's the, the ultimately the message of of the menorah is in the darkness we have to find our source of inspiration how do we do that? by lighting candles a candle in the Talmud and in the Torah represents a mitzvah a mitzvah is an action that brings God into the world it's through putting our inspiration into actions into mitzvahs into doing something consistent steady with commitment that will literally keep the inspiration going and lead to long term positivity and growth. So in the moments of inspiration, ask yourself what can I do differently in my life to stay inspired? What's a small mitzvah I can take upon myself for the rest of my life? Something really small, something easy, but something that I'm willing to commit to. The key is to figure out the smallest thing that you can commit to that's actually gonna change you. Whether it's a daily meditation or prayer, or giving charity, or learning Torah for a minute or two a day. Those are the things that actually change our life. So for thousands of years, the Jewish people have found ourselves in all sorts of oppression and persecution, running from nation to nation, realizing that we're really all alone in the world. And many Jews now are experiencing it for the first time in their life, suddenly feeling like my friends who I thought were there for me are no longer there for me. The administration of my universities, no longer there for me. Suddenly it's about context, whether or not genocide of the Jewish people is discrimination or not. And people are beginning to ask themselves, you know, how do we get out of this? How do we we overcome the darkness? And the answer is is that the Jewish people have been changing the world for the past 3,000 years since our inception. Since we stood at Mount Sinai, we've literally been transforming the world. And the key to the Jewish people constantly being able to pick ourselves up from whatever hardship we're facing and move on and rebuild is our focus on seeing the positive in every experience, realizing that God ultimately is in charge of our destiny. We're not victims. We're not victims of circumstance. We literally can take control and responsibility for the situations we're in. We can always ask ourselves, what did I do, perhaps? To bring this negativity into my life. What's the message here? What can I learn from this experience? How can I grow to make myself into the better person? To make the world into a better place? How can I inspire others? How can I light up someone else's life? How can I find hope in the darkness? How can I continue to pursue my dreams despite all odds? Ultimately, by taking that inspiration, putting it into action... My responsibility in this world is to do good. And if I focus on doing good, I will pick myself up and transform the world. We should all be blessed to see the light in the darkness of whatever we're going through personally and what the Jewish people in the world is going through as a whole. And we should all be blessed to together share in the ultimate redemption of the Jewish people as we all return to the land of Israel together and to experience the peace that has been long overdue in the world and in the Middle East. Thank you guys for listening.